HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it happens to be a very gloomy, doom, like Monday. Oh, sorry, it's Sunday, but it happens to be a very gloomy, um, rainy day today in, in Brooklyn. Um, but uh, today we're joined by the author of a guest uh, of a book that I've been really, really enjoying um, for the past year or so. It came out in hard, hardcover last year and is just out in paperback. And um, to kind of get everyone situated on what it's about is if anyone has ever walked into a GNC or a vitamin shop or another big box sort of nutritional supplement store um, and noticed the aisles and aisles of, of supplements that seem to promise to do just about everything and anything you can imagine and hope for in your life, uh, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. Um, my guest book is called Vitamania, Our Obsessive Quest for Nutritional Perfection. And its author is Catherine Price. She is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in publications, including The Best American Science Writing, New York Times, Popular Science, LA Times, and many more. Um, Catherine, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks so much for joining, and um, great job on this book. I have to say that it made my jaw drop several times reading it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> well, that's good to hear, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but, um, you know... I guess, like, um, so, you know, as much as I love reading about sort of, like, exposés into, like, shady business practices, I love that this book really delves into the psychology behind, or, like, national um, obsession, as you say in the subtitle, for um, nutritional perfection is really fueling um, the lust for vitamins in this day and age. So to kind of, like, I'm going to, like, start off with a really broad strokes question 
because in the last uh, in the last few months, uh, everyone's been talking about the problem or the epidemic, really, of opioid addiction. So, mm-hmm. and you know, we we discovered that you know Prince was suffering from it, and in fact, died from an accidental overdose of of uh, prescription medication. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering about you know just the just the um, commonplace um, and everyday attitude that we have towards pills um, rather than more like lifestyle habits to really fulfill our needs and um, just everyday ailments and uh, so forth. Um, You know, have we become really dependent on the idea of swallowing something um, in a little, in a little, uh, you know, jar of some sort that, uh, that really is driving our, our interest or obsession with vitamins as well? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I like to point out when I'm talking about vitamins is just to clarify, you know, what they actually are and what the difference is between vitamins and dietary supplements in particular. So mm-hmm. vitamins are actually substances that are normally found in foods, that most of which we can get from foods, uh, that we need in a small amount to prevent a specific deficiency disease, and there's mm-hmm. 13 of them. And there are something like 85,000 dietary supplements on the market in America. Um, so a vitamin when it's a pill, is a dietary supplement, but not mm-hmm. all dietary supplements are vitamins. So I like to clarify that because a lot of times we conflate those two terms. And then also a lot of times when I told people I was writing a book about vitamins, they immediately asked me about the pills. And I thought that was so interesting to your point because it, it made me realize that we have gotten to the point where we think about these substances as something you take rather than what that you eat. Right. And when you take them as pills, you kind of expect they're going to do something for you. So mm-hmm. I, I would say that our... Um, I mean, I don't really know about the connection I draw between opioids and, and right. vitamins or but, dietary supplements, mm-hmm. but I think that it's really interesting that when we that vitamins, when you take them as a pill, you still associate them with the health qualities of food or the safety qualities of food, I should say. Mm-hmm. But you also ascribe to them the potential power of a medication, so they kind of exist in this interesting middle ground between food and drug. Uh, right you know, the dietary supplement. And I think that can be a very dangerous place to be because, sure, you can't overdose on pretty much anything if you're eating it in food because most of these things are found in very small amounts. But if you take something to a dietary supplement or in a concentrated pill form, you can really get high doses of whatever the substance is that you're taking. Um, and if you want, we can get more into the issues with dietary supplements at large in terms of right. contamination and regulation and stuff. But yeah, anyway, yeah, I think it is very interesting how we kind of have taken something from food and then turned it into a pill and then yeah. still assume it's safe for us, even I, though it's a different form and we're taking it for a different purpose. Yeah, I just, you know, anecdotally, you know, conversationally with, um, you know, a lot of folks that I know that, you know, I, at least in my lifetime, I think that one of the craziest or more interesting things about supplements that I've noticed is just that they have kind of evolved from something that was in a shelf or, you know, a few aisles, maybe in a drugstore, pharmacy or supermarket into something that is just this, uh, you know, the, these huge big box shops like, you know, GNC or vitamin shop. And it seems to like imply just their presence, their existence um, like something like an over reliance on um, just you know taking something, taking something all the time. Um, you know, walking around the aisles with like a huge cart, you know, to fill up for mm-hmm. for various needs, like I need to sleep better and uh, and so forth. So it's it's you know it's interesting how this has really risen. Um, but I do definitely want to talk about some of the you know you trace a lot of the. Um, 
some of the pitfalls of this over-reliance. But let's start back at the at the beginning. Um, how did we how did we begin supplementing foods um, with vitamins? Because this this wasn't always the case. I mean, um, actually, if you might, if you don't mind, I would love to read a little section from the beginning of your book. Um, sure. Okay, so you're talking about. Um, a movement where it was discussed that um, maybe to preserve more of the vitamins in wheat um, when refining them for flour, maybe they could look into different milling methods. Um, so you write, it's possible to imagine hist- a historical trajectory where once vitamins' importance had been accepted, government policy and market demand would have created a food supply very different from what we have today. In this alternate reality, vitamin-dense foods like fresh produce would be subsidized, subsidized rather than soybeans, wheat, and corn, which are the cornerstone of modern processed foods and whose natural vitamins, as we'll see, are mostly removed or destroyed before we eat them. Could the nutritional needs of the rapidly growing American population have continued to be met without the use, in, uh, use of synthetic vitamins? Perhaps not, especially with... the with especially given how many of us there are now. But there's no way to know because that's not the, re- the direction we decided to take. Instead, 20th century food scientists focused on developing ways to ensure longer shelf lives. Chemists came up with more than 400 new additives to help in the processing and preservation of food from 1949 to 1959 alone, and then packaged processed foods became so popular that Fortune magazine noted that Americans' relentless pursuit of convenience meant that there are a few jokes these days about young brides whose, talented, whose talents are limited to the knowledge of the can opener. Um, a really interesting uh, glimpse into an alternate reality that we did not take there. Um, so, so let's take us back to why, why we started on this path of adding supplements to, to foods where there are vitamins present. How did this all Yeah, happen? it was very interesting to kind of uh, trace this history. So first of all, I thought that vitamins must have been discovered a long, long time ago, um, mm-hmm. time immemorial or, you know, at least when there were Vikings <laughs> for some reason, I think it was a vitamin C and scurvy. But in reality, the word was only coined in 1912, and vitamins That's were crazy. really discovered at the turn of the 20th century in a pretty long process that spanned, I mean, I would say 50 years of kind of recognizing deficiency diseases and then eventually figuring out these things were in food and then eventually learning how to make them. Um, so basically, in the Teens, 1910 and you know through 20. That's when a lot of the vitamins were discovered, and it was also shortly after then that people began to learn how to make some of them for the first time. Um, and this proved to be this huge boon for food marketers because all of a sudden there were these substances that were in their products because mm-hmm. at that point there were not as many processed foods, right? So right. let's say your sun-kissed oranges. You find out, oh, my goodness, there is something in my oranges um, called vitamin C, and this prevents scurvy, which is an absolutely horrible disease that no one would – I mean, it's absolutely – it's gruesome. And – now we and you can't taste it and you can't see it and you can't even measure it but it is in oranges we sell oranges and the american public is starting to become aware of vitamins that's pretty awesome from a marketing perspective <laughs> so basically you start to see makers of foods or food manufacturers and distributors using vitamins in their advertisements quite frequently at the same time you start to 
see the rise of processed foods in America, using a lot more, say, refined grains and things, which is necessary if you want to have food that's going to last long enough for you to ship it across the country and then um, put on a store shelf and basically create the modern su- supermarket. You can't have stuff that's going to rot or go rancid quickly. So mm-hmm. when you take those um, substances out of the flour that go rancid, like a lot of the fats and things like that, you actually remove a lot of the vitamins that were in that flour. So initially, food manufacturers were reluctant to even admit that there was a difference. They actually tried to advertise or claim in their advertisements that processed foods could be even better for you Mm -hmm. vitamin-wise, which is not true. Um, But eventually, they realized the American public was probably going to catch on to that eventually, and they, they really should start adding vitamins back into their foods sometimes even in greater amounts than originally were Mm -hmm. present, and then using that as an advertising um, ploy. And so that's exactly what you start to see happen. So you have all these foods whose vitamins were naturally, excuse me, natural vitamins were removed in the processing, and this is coinciding with the ability to synthesize vitamins in bulk, and food manufacturers begin to realize that it's in their best interest to use the synthetic vitamins to put them back um so you would you know if you look at a breakfast cereal and it look on the back of that label and it says you've got 100 percent of everything that is not because <laughs> that was naturally in your cocoa puffs or whatever um the vitamins these days are basically a lot of them are sprayed on at the end like literally sprayed in a big that, drum it's that kind sounds of like a delicious machine for this. and uh, <laughs> or it's worked into the um the dough beforehand, depending on what the vitamin is and how stable it is and the best way to apply it. But anyway, to answer your question, yeah, we get to, I just thought it was fascinating to think that the American food supply and the way we eat now, it could not happen if you didn't have synthetic vitamins, because if you didn't Mm -hmm. have these vitamins to add back to the foods, then we would actually be at risk of nutritional deficiency diseases because the foods we eat don't have many, most of their natural vitamins have been removed in the processing. That's crazy. So we might have scurvy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, and I also thought it was really interesting that these nutritional deficiency diseases can't ever be eradicated. You know, you cannot find a vaccine for scurvy because the only vaccine for it is to eat vitamin C, and you have to eat it regularly. So basically any time you find people in a situation where their food supply is compromised, whether because they don't have access to, um, I don't know, oranges or, or natural vitamin C sources or because they're eating really poor diets that are so refined that they were so monotonous that they don't actually get C. You can have scurvy pop up anytime. We'll never be able to get rid of it unless we evolve to the point that we could make our own vitamin C again. But I just thought that was really interesting to think about. Oh, you also noticed that even though the finished foods are made in America, um, you know, applying or spraying on (laughs) these vitamins, um, most of the vitamins at least in the beginning, were not made in America. Um, and th- in fact, um, the earliest sort of um, nutritional supplement uh, companies were really monopolies and just like held between three or four um, large uh, European makers of, of the products. And uh, that was a recipe for corruption very early on with price fixing and so forth. Um, what is it? Mm-hmm. So, so I guess... Um, so to kind of flash forward to today, um, there's a lot of discussion about the, the, you know, the regulation or the lack thereof um, of vitamins. I don't know if you saw this PBS um, Frontline documentary, too, on this same subject that you explore, um, talking mm-hmm. about the wildly unre- unregulated industry. Um, but, um, you know, so with 
the lack of, you know, with with some of these incentives that they have, such as like cutting corners of, of testing rigorous, rigorously for um, the safety of, of some of these products, uh, we've seen some worst case scenarios, which you comment on, um, such as in the 80s, there was uh, there was several cases of, of really bad symptoms that was linked to a, a nutritional supplement um, that was supposed to be for sleep um, called L-tryptophan. And uh-huh. um, so this is kind of like a horror story scenario, right, of, uh, of basically the unregulated nature of this industry. But I, I thought this was really fascinating. So uh, a few people came down with really mysterious uh, you know, symptoms, their, their hair was falling out, uh, they had fevers, pain, um, and uh, one person, you know, had night sweats and sort of testified to this. I thought it was really interesting that it took, like, a small-town newspaper journalist to draw the connection between these victims' uh, mysterious illnesses and the, the L-tryptophan supplement rather than doctors. Mm-hmm. So do you think that... Um, Given all these new, flashy new supplements on the market, do doctors really know what the heck they're prescribing when it comes to them, or do they have any way to know that they're safe? Um, well, no. I mean, yeah, we, there's a lot of things to talk about in that question. I mean, first of all, just to, to get to your point about where the supplements are made, or where I should say where the ingredients are made, because as you pointed out, the finished products are normally or often made in America, whether it's like a pill that people are a packaging or the cereal that gets sprayed with the vitamins. But the vitamins and the other ingredients themselves are mostly made abroad. In fact, there's basically no domestic vitamin manufacturer and that's in America still the case. right now. Wow. Yeah, for for the thirteen vitamins, and so most of them come from China. Um, some still from Europe, and I bring that up not because there's anything inherently wrong with with supplements or vitamins made in China, but just that we like to think about our food supply as being so great. And but if you put together the fact that our actual food has had so many of its vitamins removed, with the fact that most of the vitamins we are adding are not actually made domestically, I just thought that was kind of interesting to realize how dependent we are on other countries for our basic nutrition nutritional needs. Um, yeah, but you'd never then know. to flash forward mm-hmm. to what you're saying about the supplements and about whether or not doctors know what their patients are taking, uh, first of all, you know, very few doctors would actually prescribe a supplement because they're not trusted and also they're over the counter. You don't need a prescription for these things. So I think the bigger issue is that. Uh, people are very, very hesitant to tell their doctors what supplements they're taking. Um, I'm not. I think that's for a variety of reasons. In part, they're worried they'll get criticized. They know their doctor is going to look at them funny. They don't want to be told not to take the supplements, and huh. it just seems perhaps irrelevant because you think they're going to be safe. And I think what a lot of consumers don't recognize is that there are very few regulations. Well, I should say that the regulations that are in place for supplements are not what you might think they are. So a lot of people will say, oh, the dietary supplement industry is not regulated. It is regulated. It's regulated by the FDA. Uh, The issue is that thanks to the industry, the supplement industry, which is very powerful, um, several very important and influential laws were passed in the 80s and 90s, or 70s and 90s, that forbade the FDA from ever requiring that dietary supplements be tested for safety or efficacy before they're sold. And that basically means that if I were to package up some kind of um, 
concoction in my kitchen right now <laughs> and then put it into capsule form. I could sell it on the Internet. And first of all, no one would come after me, most likely, because I'm too small. <laughs> and, and they just don't have enough resources. Right. But if they did and they wanted to say, okay, well, I want to make sure you're abiding by the law, I wouldn't have to produce any evidence that I tested my weird supplement on any living creature anywhere. Um, I supposedly would have to be able to produce some kind of document that suggested why I thought it was an okay idea. Mm. But people who have actually gone into it and like looked at some of the examples that supplement companies have had for why their products are supposedly safe have found things like a Wikipedia entry, which who knows who wrote that? It could have been them. Right. Or like a college paper that was talking about this random um, substance. So that's, I think, an important thing that many people don't realize um, about dietary supplements. I also think it's really interesting that the so the big law that was passed that was the most influential was this thing called the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. It was in 1994. It was written by the supplement industry, um, signed into law by Bill Clinton, and that's the one that forbade the FDA from really requiring things for these um, products. And the way the industry got this passed was they got the public to support them. It was mm -hmm. ingenious. So they basically used the word vitamin, which sounds safe, right? I mean, it's from the Latin word for life. And they basically started to use the word vitamin to apply to all dietary supplements. And that's where you kind of see the beginnings of this like con conflation between the two terms. And they started to tell the American public that the FDA was going to take their vitamins away. And the FDA had these very sinister plans to regulate vitamin C. Ooh. And they did things like run um, run advertisements, for example, I suggest Googling this, it's a great, <laughs> a funny ad, with Mel Gibson, there's like a SWAT team oh, that yes. descends upon his house in L.A., very scary music, and then the the lights flash on and there's Mel Gibson in his bathroom in his kitchen with a, with a, a bottle of vitamin C, <laughs> right, and they handcuff him and he's like, yeah, vitamin C, you know, like in oranges? And then there's, you know, the typewriter font that scrolls across the screen and says, the FDA is thinking about taking your vitamins away. Write to your congressperson now and tell them, you know, you won't stand for this or whatever. Anyway, it worked. And I, I tell that story just to show that the supplement industry really got it into American consumers' mind that having access to all supplements without really any oversight for safety or effect, uh, efficacy was a matter of freedom and that vitamins are freedom and since vitamins and dietary supplements are now used interchangeably dietary supplements are also freedom you should be free to take what you want no one should be able to tell you not to take something and it's none of your your doctor's business if you're taking these supplements it's your business um, I think that's a really interesting psychological manipulation of us it's extremely effective and one of the things I was hoping to do in the book is to kind of point out how we got to this place and then suggest that maybe we should rethink, like, what's, what's really free here? Like, are you really free if you can't tell if a substance that's sold in your Walgreens or wherever else and is safe? I mean, if you pick up toothpaste, you have some assumption it's not going to hurt you, right? I, I feel pretty free that I could pick Crest, I could pick Colgate, whatever, and I know that I'm not going to get hurt. I can't do that with a dietary supplement. And to me, that doesn't really feel like freedom. Right. So I just thought it was kind of interesting to, to flip it around. Um, and then people will say, oh, well, you know, prescription drugs, which have a whole different regulation process. It's very daunting and very, very expensive and very long. They'll say, oh, well, prescription drugs cause all these problems, um, kill people, like you're just talking about the opioid issue. Uh, so right. how can supplement, you know, maybe, maybe that regulation isn't really effective. And I would say, yes, that's true. There are problems with prescription drugs. 
but think about the fact that they, they went through some process. Someone actually did try to find out what they were doing mm-hmm. and tried to see if they were going to be safe or effective, and still problems exist afterwards. Then think about the dietary supplement industry, which I should point out, in addition to vitamins, it's um, the herbal products, the botanical products, mm. amino acids, bodybuilding powders, weight loss supplements, uh, sexual enhancement supplements, huge, mm. wide range of kind of crazy substances. No one's even trying to see if those are safe because they're not allowed to. Seriously. And it seems like a very so, realistic anyway. um, alternative to getting a prescription if, uh, you know, if, if this is something that you could just grab at GNC and it says that it's going to like help your pain, alleviate your pain or help you sleep, then you, you know, you don't have to delve into these maybe more questionable or expensive, um, things from the doctor. So that, that I feel like there is some conflation perhaps going on, um, between the, the herbal supplements. And, you know, speaking of the freedom, uh, that's a really compelling thing. That's like just a really interesting development. Um, and you're saying that, you know, anyone can sell these products, too, if you just have a Wikipedia mm-hmm. entry. Like, so what about the freedom to sell something that I invented that I'm saying will give you happy dreams or something? Maybe that's part well, of it, too. Well, you know what's too. so interesting about that is that so the main regulation around that would, would be how you labeled it. So mm-hmm. you can't say that it will make you sleep or it will cure insomnia. You can't mm-hmm. say that your product May or your cure. supplement is going yeah. to cure, treat, mitigate, or prevent um, an illness. But you can say it would support good dreams Ooh, right okay. Or like okay yeah so as long as you so you'll notice you'll see like promotes urinary health instead of prevents urinary incontinence mm-hmm. like you, you start to realize that it really is just a word game and that was like a last minute compromise in this bill i was just talking about that they, it's called a structure function claim and as long as supplement makers are careful about their wording you can really get away with a lot and i think also that the other point i like to make that you kind of just touched upon in terms of people going in and wanting to get something say to help them sleep or to alleviate their pain is that you're going in and buying these supplements because you want them to do something and often that something is the same thing you'd also take a prescription drug for right. but you're thinking it's more natural and safe because exactly. it's a supplement so I just encourage people to take a step back, step back and say, first of all, like, what's natural? There's no definition of natural, even in, for the FDA's terms. And safe. They're working on well, that, you're I taking think. It to, <laughs> they're working on yeah. it. I know. They're revisiting it right now. It's, like, yeah. been a 20-year process. But, right. um, and safe, it's like no one's actually looking at whether that is safe. And I think what is... What I keep, I just can't wrap my mind around is that we take these these dietary supplements because we want them to do something, but we also assume they must be totally safe, and those two things can't go together because even a even a drug that is not harming you in any way, say you're taking, um, I don't know, like a leave or something, you're taking the recommended dose and you're not doing anything crazy with it. It could interfere with another drug right, you're taking, right. even if it itself seems innocuous and is doing what it's supposed to in terms of your headache. And with drugs, again, it's, it can be difficult to figure out all the side side effects and interactions you can have. But doctors do have a bit of a better sense of how to find out those interactions, and there are certain ones that are very well known. So at least there's like a bit more. Dietary supplements can definitely interact with prescription drugs, but it's there's not a centralized database for all the brands. And if you don't tell your doctor what you're taking, there's no chance they're going to be able to find out about this. And I think maybe it's helpful for people to understand a bit about how that 
happens so that they maybe it'll sink in a bit basically like your your liver breaks down a lot of drugs right it breaks down everything that all of the drugs and it basically determines how much of the drug is going to be just excreted and how much is going to be put into your body's circulation and be active mm. so certain drugs use the same enzymes and molecules as other drugs and when that happens they inter interact with each other because, for example, if one drug uses all the enzyme that another drug needs or the pathway that this other drug would take, the other drug is either going to be excreted more readily than it should have been or taken up more readily. So that's why, for example, grapefruit interferes with a lot of different medications because it, it um, interferes with these pathways in your liver. And the same thing is true for something like St. John's wort. St. John's wort, um, which is often taken for depression, it's one of the most popular supplements in America, it interferes with upwards of 50% of prescription drugs on the market because oh it uses the same set of enzymes. So if you take St. John's Wort, it makes things less effective. And some of the things it makes less effective are antidepressants, which I always think is very ironic given <laughs> why people take St. John's Wort. Um, birth control pills. So I've heard stories of accidental pregnancies that occur when someone's like, how did this happen? I, I was taking my birth control pill every day regularly. If you took no St. John's Wort, it might not have worked as well. It should have. And also... Um, organ transplant rejection drugs, anti-rejection drugs. So people have actually lost transplanted kidneys because they've been taking St. John's wort along with their anti-rejection medication, didn't know about this interference, didn't tell their doctor they were taking the St. John's wort, and then you lose a kidney. I mean, it, people have actually died from that, which is really terrifying to think about. So the I just bring that up, not to say yeah. that every supplement on the market is going to hurt you, um, but just to be aware that if you're taking it for a drug-like purpose, and it does something. <laughs> First of all, it could be bad. And second, it can interfere with a lot of other actual drugs that you're taking. And it really can be dangerous. And that's why you do need to tell your doctor if you're going to take these things. Wow. How ironic with the St. John's word, which is supposed to you know, I know, help I us. Know. You know, I noticed that, you know, the, the potency of some, not only supplements, but just vitamins um, is really interesting and um you know for instance my dog was um ate rat poison once and the uh, vet recommended um this really strong vitamin k which would help mm -hmm. clear that up so okay let's talk about potency levels in our everyday vitamins let's you know going back to mel gibson and his vitamin c um you know if you turn around the bottle and see like the percentage of vitamin c that it's giving you it's like a thousand times the daily recommended limit is that a good thing or it seems just so incredulous so who you know is there a limit to what's good and what's bad or or you know yeah i mean it's a it's a great question and uh First of all, I have to say, for your dog, they probably ate something that was a blood thinner. Mm -hmm. um, yep. A lot of rat poisons are blood you thinners because K will, yeah. it causes coagulation and clotting. So it might have been a that might have been why. And as a total side note, just because I think this is interesting, vitamin D is often used as a rat poison. Um, I forgot exactly. It basically, like, yeah, it kills the rats, but it's, at a, it's considered safe for humans because if a kid eats the rat poison and it's vitamin D, like a dose of vitamin D that will kill a rat is, is not that bad for a human. So you, I kind of laughed when I found that out because I was imagining all these, like, toddlers getting their daily vitamin D while it's also getting rid of the house's pest problem. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's a bit of a side note. But in terms of potency, a couple things come to mind. First is that thanks to this um, different law that was passed in the 70s, called the Proxmire Amendment. The FDA can't actually uh, create a definition of what 
a particular vitamin supplement should contain. So if I say I'm, if you're going to sell a multivitamin, there's no definition of what a multivitamin is. There's no standard for which vitamins it has to contain or in what amounts it has to contain those vitamins. So that I bring that up because, for example, a lot of adults will even tell me, oh, I really like gummy vitamins. And first of all, they, I mean, they're basically candy, so just eat a gummy bear right. and take a multivitamin if that's yeah. what you're doing. But if you look at the back of the gummy vitamins and compare them with a, a swallowable pill, they have different combinations of vitamins. So, I mean, I just bring that up because it's kind of crazy to me that you can't even, like, buy a multivitamin and then know what the dose is going to be. Right. And imagine right. if you couldn't, if you bought, like, Tylenol and it was like, oh, this one might have 2,000 might. milligrams. This one has 500, but whatever, it's all one dose. Um, and then to your question in particular, in terms of the potency, in terms of how much is in these things and whether that's a good idea, um, I think it's good to... Well, let me see. I mean, there's so many ways to talk I mean, about it seems that. Like it I think could the most useful from a consumer perspective is that it's probably not the best idea to take thousands of percents of your daily right. value. Right. Um, or like it's just. I mean. Oh, go ahead. If if you assume that that it's only a good thing, it's only a harmless thing. It can only do more good for your body. And it could be an awesome thing, though, at the same time. So Right, right. Yeah. And people assume that. And it really that hasn't mm-hmm. been proven. In some cases, the high doses of the vitamins have been actually proven to be dangerous, like in the case of uh, beta carotene, which is a precursor to A, or A itself, which is toxic to your liver and not, not all that high doses. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that the numbers on the back of the the uh, supplement facts panel or on the back of the bottle for foods and for supplements. Currently, those percent daily values are based on recommendations from 1968. Uh-oh. So they're very out of date because most of them have changed. <laughs> okay. Um, so which- Right, they're working on it now. The new version is supposed to update it, but right now they're very out of date. And also the RDA is not meant as a personalized prescription for any of us. So the big take-home point is don't really go for thousands of a percent, but also don't use those labels as a a scorecard for your diet. Don't think because your breakfast cereal has a a line of 100% or your multivitamin has 100%, that that means anything because it really doesn't. Gotcha. So vitamin C in the thousand percents, probably not the best idea. For, for well, I just think people. any vitamin, I mean, vitamin C is pretty innocuous, but or people think it's pretty innocuous, but I just think in general, since we don't know what high doses of things do to us over the long term in many cases, it's just, like, why are you doing that? There hasn't been any proven benefit to taking these super doses, so why not just... I don't know, hedge your bets, stick to doses you could consume in food. Like if you could get that much vitamin C and the amount of oranges you're going to eat, okay, but don't go crazy on any of them. Absolutely. An orange a day. Um, So there's so much to talk about, but, um, uh, you know, we're about out of time, but I just have to point out that um, the epigraph for your, the epitaph that is for your book um, is the more we know, the more we don't know. And that's exactly how I feel after reading because it just opens up so many other questions. Um, questions <laughs> well, hopefully, here and there. I mean, my um, point of the book was hopefully to give people enough sense of uncertainty to get them a little freaked out, and then to say, you know what, it's okay because if you just eat stuff that naturally contains a lot of nutrients, you don't need to worry about any of that. So you can actually really calm down and be much. It's actually very scientific to calm down. Oh, <laughs> so that's hopefully what the ultimate takeaway will be. Absolutely. Thank you so much for. Let's end on that. Actually, that sounds like a that perfect sounds good. note. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. And uh, definitely check out Vitamania. It's out in paperback. No reason not to get it now. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.
Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Never had no loving like this before.